I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. The next chapter. We talk hockey night in Canada. The idea wasn't that he was a predator. Do I still have the right to write about this island that I haven't lived in? The next chapter. CBC Radio 1. And Sirius XM. The Amazon First Novel Award has launched the careers of some of the best of Canada's novelists. This September alone, we've featured interviews with two past winners, Joan Thomas and Mona Awad. They're both writers who have more than fulfilled that initial promise. And today, we close the program with the 2023 Amazon winner, Jasmine Seeley. She'll be here to tell us about her novel, The Island of Forgetting. In a half an hour, I'll bring you my conversation with the inimitable Aita Sadhu. She's a respected children's storyteller, bookseller, and activist. And she's one of Toronto's most respected community and cultural connectors. Today, she talks about creating space for black writers and her latest children's book, I Am Big. Also today, Terry Follis answers the Proust questionnaire. But first, Ryan B. Patrick's interview with Genevieve Scott about her chewy new novel, The Damages. I'm Ali Hassan, and welcome to the next chapter. I'm joined now by my colleague and Next Chapter contributor, Ryan B. Patrick. He and I will be working together in the months ahead on the program. I'm really excited about this, Ryan. And I mean, how exciting it must be for you to work with me, Ali Hassan. It is an honor and a privilege. I genuflect I, to I the should, man. I should say that Ryan and I have been colleagues for years on Canada Reads, by the way. I'm not just forcing a stranger to admit that they like me. Uh, I know you're here today to bring us your interview with Genevieve Scott, Ryan, and about mm. this new novel, The Damages. Can mm. you set that up for us? I can do that, Ali. So for people of a certain vintage, they know that the late 1990s was a very interesting time. We're talking about the tail end of grunge rock. We're talking about girl power, uh, Spice Girls, female empowerment. But it was also a toxic time in terms of mainstream views around women and sex and sexuality. Think about Monica Lewinsky and Bill Clinton. Think about that reaction to that situation and how that dynamic kind of played out on a world stage. So in the, in the Damages by Genevieve Scott, imagine a Canadian university campus in the late 1990s. There's lots of heavy drinking. There's seemingly unfettered sex. Consent was still a fledgling issue. That whole Me Too movement, that was like 20 years in the future. Mm -hmm. So this is the world we enter in The Damages by Genevieve Scott. So I had a really cool conversation with her about the novel, the time it's set in, and how the book kind of explores sex and that ever-changing power dynamic between men and women. All right. I'm looking forward to hearing this. And uh, with that in place, here is Ryan B. Patrick's conversation with Genevieve Scott, the author of The Damages. Genevieve, how are you doing? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. So good to connect. Uh, I really appreciated this book. I appreciated some of the themes and some of the concepts that it kind of brought about. And the novel is like a note-perfect rendering of time and space. We're talking like 
late 90s, mid 90s, we're talking girl power, we're talking about indie grunge, we're talking um, underground rap, we're talking um, sexual dynamics and that ebb and flow between um, girl power and the resulting backlash uh, in terms of how it was kind of commodified or, or commercialized or what was your, what can you, what did you want to explore in terms of that dynamic of how women were perceived in the 90s? A conversation I was looking to bring about in this book is a little bit about the duplicity and um, dishonesty of the decade in a sense, because in the late 90s, Canadian universities were admitting as many um, or more, I think, women than men into their programs. Mm. The... um, the president of my program, I was in a business program in university, uh, was a young woman. And I think that I really believed then that sexism and chauvinism were a thing of the past, mm-hmm. um, that that we had entered a new era. Uh, and I was naive about that because there was a lot of toxicity, a lot of sexism and misogyny in the way we still partied and joked and socialized mm-hmm. on campus. And um, and I think, although then I wouldn't have said there was a problem with sexism, I also arrived to a campus and took the highway exit where there was a sign that said, fathers, thank you for sending us your, your daughters. Mm-hmm. Um, There's a conversation that Roz has with her mother in the book where she kind of explains the the context of the time, which was women, I think, at least I and my friends felt we were empowered to do things like um, have casual sex and make crude jokes. And, you know, there's nothing there's nothing wrong with that. But then we weren't sort of sure what to do when when someone was harmed mm-hmm. in, in certain cases. Right. Uh, that was still a confusing space for us, okay. understanding consent and boundaries. Right. So in that world, in that context, you insert Roz, which is our protagonist. She heads off to Regis, which is the fictionalized university set in Ontario in the story. But Roz is hell-bent on reinvention. She's had her own issues in the past with friends and making friends and whatnot. And she doesn't want to fail at friends again. What is her reinvention plan? Her reinvention plan, I think she was very isolated in high school. Um, You know, she had friends, but they didn't sort of feel like they were sort of small F friends, I guess. She she, she wanted to really find her people. Mm. Um, And she wanted to hitch herself to the funnest, coolest people she could find, you know, the best looking, the ones with the most interesting stories, the most rebellious, and um, kind of let that glow rub off on her. Yeah. I think Roz is such an interesting character because she's not evil per se, but she does have her own issues in terms of telling the truth, Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of trying to shrink and fit herself into certain spaces and the cost that's involved with that in terms of her own character or how she treats other people. What was it like creating a unlikable protagonist in many respects? I think with Roz, what I was really trying to do was create a believable, insecure young woman. Um, I wanted to create this real complicated character who made mistakes and 
had flaws and wasn't always likable because none of us are. And I think um, all the time. And I, I think what um, one thing that that we have to remember about Roz, too, is that she is looking back on her experience retrospectively and right. she is going to be her own harshest critic. There's also, I think, in our culture, kind of this general purpose um, expectation that women in literature be likable, uh, that they be sort of good or aspirational in some way, or if they aren't, that they'll have some kind of triumph by the end of the book that that makes them that way. And, and um, I don't know that that's the most truthful way to write a character. Right. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and I also think that having these characters that are flawed and make mistakes kind of make us more sympathetic as as people, as readers, not only to those characters, but also to ourselves, where we see that we share some of those um, some of those behaviors. So we're talking about 1998. That was the year of like Monica Lewinsky, Bill Clinton, yeah. that whole scandal. Uh, I, I think so, looking back at that now, we see it in a different light. Um, so what was the view of Monica Lewinsky back, back then? And how does that resonate with some of the themes in the novel that you explore in The Damages? So in The Damages, I wrote about the Monica Lewinsky, Bill Clinton um, topic as kind of a a background um, to some of the things happening in January 1998 on Regis campus. And that was just sort of to set the the tone of what it felt like then um, to to consider the, the way we considered that relationship wasn't about, uh, the president being this powerful person who had abused his power, it was more like, can you believe this intern who is so desperate that she threw herself at him? That was the tenor of the discussion, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Um, and it it seems so hard to believe now, but I remember friends dressing up for a costume party as Bill and Monica where Monica was portrayed as a promiscuous person and the president was sort of unaltered in his appearance. I mean, nothing. The the idea wasn't that he was the predator. The idea was that she was the one who had done something wrong. Right. Um, And that was definitely uh, how it was talked about. We joked about Monica Lewinsky, much less about Bill. Mm -hmm. So bringing it back to the book, you have Roz, your protagonist, um, the roommate is Megan, who's smart, kind, but definitely not cool. So Ma- Roz's favorite line when asked about her is, we're not close. Um, so the book unfolds. Um, something happens. I don't want to give too much away. And Megan goes missing. How does Roz react when Megan kind of disappears? Roz isn't particularly concerned because the context here is important. It's the ice storm um, the campus is in, uh, under some kind of lockdown. Uh, many students are going home to safer places, and many students have kind of been brought into the dorm that they're living in to uh, because that dorm has is one of the few that has power. So they're staying there. They're sleeping there. Rooms have been reshuffled. So at first, for Roz, there are many possible explanations for why Megan isn't around 
including the fact that the night before she had asked Megan to sleep elsewhere because she was, you know, hosting somebody else in her room uh, who, you know, she was interested in. Um, so the worry only kind of creeps in after a while. And even then, I think that worry is so uncomfortable for Roz. She's able, and because there could be some other explanations at hand for where Megan is, she's able to kind of convince herself that there is a good explanation for um, Megan's absence. And so that becomes, well, Megan must have gone back to Toronto. That's what a lot of people are doing. It was something they'd kind of discussed. And so she really latches on to that idea. Um, but I think what this all is is a reflection of the times and also her character, that that self-absorption, absorption, that self-centeredness, that insecurity. She's not really able to care about Megan like mm-hmm. a human being because she's so, you know, worried about her own reputation and her own self. Right. So let's flash forward 20, 20 years in the future. Roz is now a mother to a son and her former partner and son's father is accused of sexual assault. This mm-hmm. is during the Me Too movement. Um, it forces Roz to kind of look at herself and acknowledge some of the lies that she's told herself and others. How does this, what does this crisis kind of shake loose within her? The accusations against Roz's former partner, what they do is uh, put Roz into this position of having to decide and think about what she believes. Mm -hmm. And there's a parallel with that and um, what happened to her in the 90s, you know, who, who she believed and who she trusted, whose instincts she believed, not her own. Uh, she kind of went around with, went along with what the crowd thought. Um, 30 years later, she's figuring out whether she can sort of trust her own instincts about a person and about herself. And also consider the way in which um, her attitudes have changed about um, abuse and what constitutes sexual abuse, what constitutes um, assault, what constitutes a violation of boundaries uh, between over the last 25 years. Mm -hmm. And just because she felt a certain way about people's behavior uh, in 1998 um, doesn't mean that uh, she can't evolve and feel differently about that 25 years later. Um, That's something I wanted to capture because I wanted this book to open up conversations that are not one-size-fits-all, but consider the breadth of our personal conditioning, our own um, experiences, our the eras in which we grew up, Mm -hmm. our cultures and our existing belief systems. and we may have felt one way about our own behavior and about someone else's behavior at a certain point, uh, but that doesn't mean we aren't capable of seeing the world differently right. now. And that is part of Roz's journey. Mm-hmm. But one of the things she ignored for a long time was her <laughs> own partner's compulsive cheating mm-hmm. and womanizing. Uh, why? Why is that? 
Roz acknowledged the cheating. Um, it took her a while to sort of gather the agency to address it because I think that um, she was afraid of um, of of untying her life from from her partners mm-hmm. because for so long he had set the the course of their life and their choices. And she had tethered herself to him at a time when uh, her self-esteem was very low. And uh, and being with him had given her sort of some measure of status. And they built this life together. And even though their personal relationship was flawed, I think she was um, – she felt a certain level of shame about um, – about leaving him. Um, she wasn't sure what she would do. And so she kind of hung on, um, as I think a lot of people do, not knowing what the other side will feel like and look like. Right. I mean, we kind of have this general sense from the outside that this person isn't good for you, you should leave them. And uh, she would probably advise the same to anybody else. But I think she really had difficulty imagining a life disentangled from him. And so she just carried on and in some ways felt that it was her role to kind of make things, if not better, Mm -hmm. then make things fluid and uh, make it work. What I really loved about this book, um, Genevieve, the damages, it, the title is very apt. Um, I think we're all damaged people in mm-hmm. a way, and a lot of that is informed by the sexual dynamics. I think one character in the book uh, says, oh, in the 60s, people, um, men used to pinch my butt, and we just kind of accepted it and rolled mm-hmm. with it. And then there's different permutations of that in terms of there's feminist waves, and then there's the resulting backlash, and then you have to ad- adapt to that. And things that happened in the 90s as portrayed in the book aren't acceptable today, but we, we just kind of rolled with it. Um, so that said, what did you want to say about power and sexual dynamics uh, in the present day in the context of this book? I think that what I wanted to say about power and sexual dynamics in the context of this book is that um, we we are evolving mm. and um, things are still not perfect today. I think that though um the situation would be very different for megan if uh if what happened to her in the 1990s were to happen today they aren't i can't account for every you know assault that that happens on a university campus and i know that sadly many go sort of unshared and unsupported and untalked about but um I think today Megan would feel much safer coming forward with the story and also much more kind of secure in her own instincts about it. Uh, she would have the language to know that what had happened to her wasn't okay, that it wasn't consensual. Whereas um, in the 1990s, what the laws were, I you know, I'm not 100% clear, but certainly the culture of the day was very much no means no, which the difficulty of that is it 
you know, Megan can say to herself, well, I didn't exactly say no, so does that mean that what happened to me was my fault? And that's an example of how uh, times have have changed, right. whereas in the 60s, you there there I mean I don't I didn't grow up in the 60s but the way the mother explains it um the boundaries were Roz's mother part, yeah sorry yeah. yeah what Roz's mother uh explains is that the the boundaries were were differently understood um there was kind of this tacit understanding that women just put themselves at risk if they were uh alone kind of with a man with a reputation and they lost all agency um, in, a, in a sense. They lost their power. And so I wanted to kind of bring up those perspectives of the different eras because I think that I wanted to start a conversation that um, and, and continue conversations between women of various generations with different experiences and um Different, uh, different ways they'd they'd learned to talk about uh, these topics, um, because I think that the more we're discussing it, the more um, empathy we're able to have for each other, and uh, the more the culture can evolve to a place where we all understand things at the at the same level and can you know get up to to speed um, with that. Uh, with the way younger people are, are understanding these topics now. Thanks, Genevieve. Thanks for stopping by, and thanks for the conversation. Thank you. That was Genevieve Scott in conversation with Ryan B. Patrick. Her latest novel is The Damages. Dog-eared. 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 Books that never get old. Hi, I'm C.S. Richardson, the author of All the Color in the World. A book I love to read is Silk by Alessandro Barrico. Silk tells the story of a Frenchman who travels to Japan to save the silk industry in his small village in France. So he travels to 19th century Japan at that point, which is closed to Westerners, and through a number of adventures, discovers himself, discovers a love, recalls the love of his life who is waiting back in France, um, and saves the the silk industry. It's a very short book. It's the book that taught me that I could write a book, and I reread it on a regular basis. Back in 2008, Terry Fallis won the Stephen Leacock Medal for Humor for his debut novel, The Best Laid Plans. That book also won Canada Reads three years later. Since then, Terry has written eight more novels and won another Leacock Medal. A New Season is the title of Terry's latest. It's a story of midlife loss and reinvention, still leavened with Terry's brand of self-deprecating humor. Here is Terry Fallis answering the next chapter's version of the Proust Questionnaire. 
What is your principal defect? Well, I think my principal defect is probably also my principal asset. I'm an eternal optimist, so I am often disappointed, uh, yet I want to keep that optimistic view. I don't know where the optimism comes from. Uh, it may have been handed down from my mother, who was always a very sunny, glass-is-half-full person. And uh, there is too much misery in the world not to consider the glass to be half-full. Or if you're an engineer, as I was officially trained to be, that glass is half full is often described as the glass is twice as large as it needs to be. Tell me about your heroes in real life. My heroes in real life, I would have to, to name among them the original seven Mercury astronauts who strapped themselves into what amounted to a pressurized tin can and allowed themselves to be blasted beyond our atmosphere into the depths of space. The bravery that took uh, was extraordinary. And uh, I feel the same way, frankly, about our Canadian astronauts, whether it's Mark Garneau or Chris Hatfield or Roberta Bondar. They are great heroes of mine. Your favorite painter? Ah, favorite painter, not to get too Canadian on you, but I would have to say Tom Thompson. And there is uh, a wonderful Montreal painter named Laurie Campbell. Uh, Laurie Campbell paints these wonderful street scenes in Montreal, often of just a building, uh, a streetscape. And she does it with such precision, yet it's clearly a painting and not a photograph. It's hard to describe, but it makes me want to enter the painting when I see it. Where would you like to live? Well, if I could live anywhere, it would be Paris in the 1920s. The literary ferment there was, uh, was extraordinary. You could sit down in a cafe and look across the room and there would be F. Scott Fitzgerald or Morley Callahan or Ernest Hemingway or Ezra Pound. Uh, and as a writer, uh, I dream about that era in Paris. What is your favorite journey? Well, I guess I have two favorite journeys that I think about quite often. One would be the journey into space. But I've also thought a lot about traveling back in time as a knowing visitor from the present. Uh, I want to have my current sensibilities but visit an earlier version of myself in an earlier time just you know to put my hands against the stone walls of buildings in Paris or in Bytown which became Ottawa for that matter downtown Toronto uh, I want to listen to people speak uh, I have this romanticized feeling that everybody was eloquent and articulate in that era and I don't know that it's true but uh, I'd like to find out by going there That was Terry Fallis answering the Proust questionnaire. His latest novel is A New Season. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. Once upon a time, there was a boy and his name was Christopher. 
Now, Christopher, he was a nice boy. He would help elderly people to bring their groceries from the store. He would even help tiny little children to cross the street. But Christopher, he had one major problem. He did not like to clean his room. I tell you, that room was upside down. The sandwiches under his bed, Lord, they were so cheesy. The socks by the door were growing funky. The room was so untidy, the place smelled funky, funky. And that fishbowl, it stank. That was a clip from the NFB adaptation of the Canadian children's classic, Christopher, Please Clean Up Your Room. It was written and narrated by Aita Sadu. Aita has been telling stories like this for children for more than 25 years. Her books have centered on the experience of black kids. And as the co-owner of a different book list in Toronto, she's created a hub of community and conversation around books and black history in Toronto and beyond. Aita's latest book for children is the very appealing story of a nine-year-old boy who loves to play hockey. It's called I Am Big with illustrations by Marley Barreau. This little boy, with his big heart and skill, skates his way past the stereotypes others hold about him. Aita Sadu joins me now in the Toronto studio. Hi, Aita. Welcome back to the next chapter. Nice to meet you, Ali. Uh, Tell me about this little boy in your book. He's both big and small, which are seemingly two opposite things, but definitely not in his case. Tell us a bit about this little boy, what makes him feel both big and small. Well, you know what? Uh, Here you are, you're nine years old, and, you know, you're a little kid, but you're also big in size. You ever watch like those uh, graduation pictures and they're little kids and they could be kindergarten or grade ones and twos and there's always that kid who is just bigger. Sure. <laughs> right? Sure. You know that moment? Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and you stand out and you look a little awkward and you feel like you just want to shrink to fit in. So here we have this character in this book, I Am Big. He's nine years old. He's a kid, but he's got this thing, this pressure of being bigger than his peers. How is he going to navigate that? And so listening to people over the years about issues in hockey, one of the threads that seemed to reoccur all the time was not just the issue of race. And I'm speaking now to the black community or the African-Canadian community. It was also, too, about the size. So in listening to people over the years, parents lamented. Herein, young players themselves, I've been fortunate to have friends who have had children who were had exceptional talent in hockey, exceptional. But this burden of size, this burden of who, what the, their identity is, just broke their hearts. They dropped out of hockey. And at every dinner party that I would go to, I would just hear this narrative over and over again. Oh, yeah, I took my son to hockey. You know, boy, easy next big thing to happen, you know, but he just can't make the drink because he is seen as a bully. He is seen as a medicine. The parallel story to that is almost every black man's story. I'm walking down the road. It's dark at night. Somebody sees me coming and they start holding on to that handbag. They suddenly see me. I'm big. I'm menacing and a threat. How does that now translate into children who are small in age, in their development, mental years, but they're big in size? How do they navigate all of that? And so 
part of writing the book was to address this conversation of size, of identity, of claiming who we are. And if I look at the history of sports, I look at the language, too, of sports commentators as they describe the beauty of us, the boldness of us, the physique of us as African people. So I'm a big is an attempt to be another tool in that conversation, another spark in that conversation, another way of people maybe looking at the world of hockey, at the world of sports. What is your connection to hockey besides having friends who had kids playing it? I know why it's on your mind from time to time. How do you feel about hockey? Uh, I'm Canadian. It's part part of the fabric of who I am. You know, we talk weather, we talk hockey, hockey night in Canada. Um, It is is part of our national discourse. Um, It it is something that when hockey is being discussed, people of color, whoever they are, brown people, black people, should be invited to the table to speak about it. And I remember I I was a kid who was born in this country, went to school in Barbados. And Barbados, they have... Uh, road hockey, let's a uh, road road tennis, road tennis, right? Mm-hmm. But I remember in the morning coming back from Barbados and seeing these guys, big guys, big white guys, you know, um, coming to school and they've got their shirts on, whether it's the Leafs or the whatever. But the team that captured or my imagination at that time, and I think captured black women in imagination at that time, was the um, Montreal, Montreal Canadiens. Sure. Guy Lefleur. Yeah, even the way they said his name. And his hair flowed behind him. And because we have hair issues, maybe we even got caught up with the flowing of the hair. Oh, my God, that's a long weave happening there, right? Coming from a nation in the Caribbean of Barbados and being exposed to the world of cricket, The West Indies cricket team played 15 years undefeated. Now, if I meet the next person from India, they're going to say to me, but in 1983, we beat you. Yeah. But how it is that a team like the Maple Leaf repeatedly failed, uh, were unable to win the Stanley Cup, couldn't advance, but the love of Canadians, the love of Torontonians for this team just blew our mind. You're thinking to yourself, boy, in the Caribbean, we say, boy, that team ain't no good at all. Lose them, that mediocre boy. Who's cheering for them, right? So this fascination with this team who... Uh, sold more merchandise, where people packed the stadiums to cheer them on was fascinating for me. Mm. I think that's what brought me to the fascination of hockey because the underdog was always continually being supported. So this book really does capture the pleasure that this little boy has in playing and that those illustrations by, by Marley Burrow show the, the delight in the, in that freedom and that speed on the ice. And I should tell you that I have an eight year old, my youngest son plays hockey, loves hockey, plays it competitively. What did you want to say about the sheer joy of the sport? Again, I remember on the CBC one afternoon, uh, there was an interview and these were students from the Jane and Finch um, community. And P.K. Subban had gifted them with hockey equipment. And they was the first time they ever went on ice, the first time they ever skated, these children that were born here in this country. Mm-hmm. Right? So is this a game for you or you're just regulated to basketball, right? Or soccer, right? Cheaper sports, yeah. And whatever league that they entered, 
they won or they had tremendous success. The CBC interviewer said to them, how did you feel? And this is exactly what they said. Oh, when we got on the ice and when we won, we felt that we were flying. It was like freedom. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. We dance because we want to feel like freedom. Every single day we wake up and we think, oh, we want to fly. We want to reach the stars. We want to reach the sky. Flight, movement, freedom. We move to this from one country to another in, in search of freedom, in search of, in, in flight to freedom. So here was this example. I wanted to show in I Am Big that we are all responsible for uplifting children. I Am Big continues your project of putting black kids at the center of stories. It's something you've done for decades. Um, now, in your own writing and at your store, uh, which is called The Different Book List, being an independent bookstore, it's never easy. And after surviving the COVID years, how are things going in that arena? I would say at this moment, it is a world of curiosity. We must always keep the conversation of race, class, gender. We must always keep these things at the center of conversations. They're not things that we can let slide. I believe that people are reading more because they have a commitment to be more aware, to be more factual in their approach to the world. I believe that, and I believe that Canadians are, are, are friends of books. In terms of, so we can only keep this conversation going. It is important for us as an institution, as a bookstore, that we continue to represent, we continue to promote uh, diverse voices in Canada and their stories, their narratives, their biographies, their memoirs, so that people will have an understanding of the role that they are playing in history. A different book list is a store. It's also a community hub. And you have branched out now with the Blackhurst Cultural Center. Can you tell us about that event space? How does it continue the, the, the same hopes and dreams that you had for the bookstore? Bookstores are community hubs just by their sheer existence. And so people said, give us a little bit more space. Give us a, a, a launch pad where we can launch our aspirations, where we can show our bigness because we are seen as little. Eh? Um, so so the Blackhurst Cultural Center, and, it, and, and, and what is sexy and beautiful about all of this is, in the Bathurst-Bloor-Seaton neighborhood, the assets from the Underground Railroad right up to this moment right now are so incredible that we coined this term Blackers Cultural Center, so that people could come, they can read, they can meet other Canadians, they can have conversations, they can showcase their books, they can translate that to film, they can translate it into visual arts. But what we are doing at Bathurst Street is nothing new. This builds on the history of black people who have been in this, this, this city since the 1800s and the presence of black people of, of African descent in the Bathurst Bloor neighborhood, um, whether there were people at the turn of the century or whether it was the explosion of people from the Caribbean who came in the 1950s and had their 
community center at the home service that came to Bathurst to get their patty, to, to get their roti, to ask cousin where I can get the next job, to meet a member of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, this, to where the domestics would congregate and trade stories, where the Jewish community would take us in because people didn't rent to us back in the day. And so the Blackers Cultural Center as an organic expression, because what independent bookstores had to ask themselves at this moment in history, what is our trajectory? What will we become? Are we going to go back to our roots in history where we were a meeting place and a printing press and a coffee shop and a place where the first this person is going to read their first book of poetry? These, were the, these are the questions that independent bookstores are asking themselves and have asked. And so we have responded. We have responded to redevelopment at Blackhurst and Bloor. We have built on the spirit of honest says that says all immigrants, all Canadians, doesn't matter who you is, come on in. Don't just stand there and look through the window, but come on in and be some part of something special and great and beautiful. Because the question is, what happens when big meets bigger. Aita Sadhu, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ali Hassan. Nice to meet you in person. For her master's thesis at UBC, Jasmine Seeley wrote a short story reimagining the mythical figure of Calypso. Calypso, in myth, is a seductive sea goddess. In Jasmine's version, she's a willful, beautiful teenager. And Jasmine transformed that short story into her award-winning debut novel, The Island of Forgetting. It's set in Barbados and follows a family over four generations as they run a beachfront hotel. There are secrets, sacrifices and loyalties that are tested against a backdrop of ever-changing tourism. The Island of Forgetting won the 2023 Amazon First Novel Award, and Jasmine spoke with our contributor, Ryan B. Patrick. Hello, Jasmine, and welcome to the next chapter. Hi, Ryan. Thanks so much for having me. (laughs) Uh, Thanks for joining me. So the novel is set in Barbados. It is called The Island of Forgetting. Uh, this is your debut novel. There's so much happening here. There's so much to unpack. It's like four generations. Uh, there are so many characters and complications. We see love, disappointment, birth, death, and all this came from a short story about Calypso. Um, can you tell me more about Calypso as a mythical character and, and why uh, does that character have so much appeal for you? Sure. Well, I think what appealed to me when I was reading about her and then I, then I, I read about her first, just kind of, you know, through Wikipedia. And then I picked up a copy of the Odyssey and was shocked to find that her section of the story only takes up something like seven pages of the whole book. Um, So I was actually fascinated by everything that we don't get to know about her. And I think that she looms very large in our imaginations as this kind of like, mythical siren seductress who you know led our hero astray and and held him captive and I think we have this like anyone who's interested in Greek mythology has this kind of like idea of her 
But really on the page in the Odyssey as written by Homer, she is only present for a very short period of time. So it was the lack of context that fascinated me. And I just this desire to kind of fill in the blanks and imagine how she would have um, told her own story had she been given the opportunity. And then it was just the idea of this island seductress and temptress. I felt that there were so many parallels there in the ways that Black women generally, but Caribbean women more specifically, are often marketed as kind of part of this um, tourism product. The idea that you come to paradise and there's these beautiful women. And I just think that there's like a bit of a stereotype there that could be unpacked. And I just thought there were some interesting parallels. So that was kind of the genesis for the story but it was really about like well what would what would calypso say like how how does she see this man how does she see herself um that was really the i kind of giving voice to the voiceless was a big inspiration for me mm-hmm. so in the novel the island of forgetting there it's about a family who's running a beachfront hotel and we see over the span of generations how tourists want different things from the islanders how how do things change over the decades yeah so that was a really interesting part of the writing process for me was digging into the history of tourism in barbados it wasn't something that i was super familiar with obviously i was born in 1990 so the the tourism that i grew up with um, would have been very different to the tourism of the of the 60s or the 70s or the 80s. Um, and so I did a lot of research just reading old travel logs um, and kind of like travel tourism from the 60s. And yeah, it was really, really fascinating. I do think that um, it has evolved, but I do think that at its root, it is still kind of this perpetuation in some ways of a colonial legacy, um, the idea that the island exists to kind of fulfill the needs and desires of people who come from very far away. Um, and no matter what iteration we see of tourism, you can't really escape that that legacy. So you spent um, a lot of time growing up in Barbados mm-hmm. and you now live in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, so both of these locations are settings for the characters in the novel. Like how has your own experience living in these both two locations kind of informed uh, how you wrote this book? Yeah, I think that, um, well, when I was writing Nautilus's character, who is um, a 17 year old who, for reasons that become evident, if you read the book, has to leave Barbados when he's 17 and, and go to Toronto and obviously, I, I also left Barbados when I was around that age and went to Toronto for university. Um, so I kind of, in terms of informing the contextual details of just like what that looks like logistically and kind of how it feels and the culture shock and the weather and just being ill-prepared for all of those changes, that was directly informed by my own experience. But I think more generally, um, I think this would be a very different book had I never left Barbados. I think that it is written in some ways with a little bit more of a little bit more distance. I'm kind of writing from the perspective of someone who has moved away and therefore I have maybe slightly more I don't want to say objectivity, but it is just, it's just a different angle at which you're looking at reality 
my book is written definitely with a little bit more space and a little bit more distance and a little bit more of that kind of like observation. It was also was for me a source of major anxiety, right? About like who gets to tell these stories? Do I still have the right to write about this island that I haven't lived in, you know, since I was 18 years old? Um, and there was like a little bit of kind of imposter syndrome about like, well, you know, do I still have that? You know, am I still Bajan enough to tell this story? But I do think that that tension is then reflected in the characters who are also questioning their own identities and their own connections to the island. So you can definitely see the way my own kind of struggles and and confrontations with that, with the idea of like home and away and, and where do I belong, that then is reflected in the characters as well. Right. So speaking of tone, the novel opens with a trauma, a traumatic event. One of the main characters, Iapetus, he witnesses his mother and brother kill his father. How does this trauma kind of carry through or reverberate uh, through the generations? Yeah, so that was definitely inspired by Greek mythology and the idea that um, these kind of mythological characters are bound by uh, fate and are punished in perpetuity for things that, for either things that they did, decisions that they made a long time ago or decisions that, that were made before they were even born. And I thought that there were just some really interesting parallels there, again, between that kind of idea in Greek mythology and also the original trauma of well, colonialism and, and plantation slavery that exists in the Caribbean. And the idea that we as Caribbean people are forever just like living in that, in the shadow of this, of this, of this legacy. Um, and it informs the way we relate to each other. It informs the way our grandparents parented our parents. It informs the way our parents parented us. And it really is this kind of unspoken, the root of this unspoken generational trauma in the Caribbean. So I definitely was fascinated by that. And then I wanted to kind of have a an event, like a, like a single event that kind of acts as the manifestation of this, like, well, what would happen if there's just this horrible thing that, that happens that then goes kind of unspoken, but we see it's, it's ripple effects over the course of, of several generations. Um, yeah, I, I just really thought mm -hmm. that was, that was interesting because I, I do think that we are so informed by things that happen before we're born. So that was just really like a deep fascination of mine when I was writing the novel is like, how can we build a sense of our, of a whole identity for ourselves where we feel kind of content and, um, and just whole as people when we don't fully know our own, our own history. The title of the book is The Island of Forgetting. Uh, parts of history are both intentionally and unwittingly forgotten. What What is the power that memory holds in, in your mind? Oh, well, I mean, I think it's, I think it's everything. Um, I, yeah, I, I don't know if, 
if memory was kind of at the forefront of my mind when I started writing the book, but it became so clear to me um, throughout the, the writing process that, yeah, it was the, that it was the heart really of the novel, not just, not just memory, but kind of memory making, mythology, myth creation within, within families. The idea that human memory is highly fallible and highly susceptible to um, kind of our own imaginations. I, I think that I remember reading somewhere that the part of your brain that um, retells memory is like the same part of your brain that creates stories. And like, so I do think that <laughs> there is this idea that we have these narratives that we tell to ourselves that we that we call memory that we call fact, but really, it is just myth-making and storytelling um, that we do internally, the way we kind of like describe our ourselves, the way we describe ourselves to ourselves, and also the way we describe ourselves to other people, and the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. Um, mm. And yeah, the idea that in the absence of kind of healthy communication um, in a family, you're then kind of forced to do even more of this kind of internal narrative filling of the blanks. Um, and so, yeah, I just think that that's so interesting. Like, who do we build ourselves up to be? Like, what what is the mythology that we create for ourselves with the limited memories that we have or the, the, the limited information that we have about our, about our own past? Mm-hmm. Thank you, Jasmine. Thanks for this conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you. That was the 2023 Amazon First Novel Award winner, Jasmine Seeley, in conversation with our contributor, Ryan B. Patrick, about her book, The Island of Forgetting. And that's it for today's program. Jacqueline Kirk is our senior producer with Lisa Matthews. Thanks this week to Olivia Pasquarelli, Talia Cleot, Laura Antonelli, and to the CBC Books digital team. Coming up next week, the very busy and prolific Cherie Demeline will be here with her latest book. It's a remix of the classic children's story, A Secret Garden. And in Cherie's new book, Into the Bright Open, the classic gets a Cherie makeover with diverse characters and indigenous philosophy. I'm Ali Hassan. Thanks for listening to the next chapter. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.